0: We are really in crunch time now as far as the VBS goes because we uh, are starting a little later than normal, but uh, this this gives us uh, ample opportunity to let the Lord show himself strong on our behalf for the leadership as well as the, uh, uh, the volunteers that are going to be a part of this, and we definitely would like to have you all be a, a great part of of the VBS this year, as you heard, it's from let's see, yeah, July the seventeenth to the twenty-first, and uh, five days. Now, the thing that we need more than anything else is your prayers. But uh, we we want to uh, also give you the opportunity to pray and ask the Lord to give you wisdom as to how He can use you and how He wants to use you. We make ourselves available to serve the Lord, and uh, He speaks in, in, in great and awesome ways and uh, prepares our hearts as well for that, uh, for that service. So I would really encourage you to, uh, uh, to pray. Talk to uh, Josh out in the foyer this, uh, this afternoon as soon as uh, the service is over and uh, get some more information. But uh, please, if you're not able to serve, that's okay. Just the, the biggest service you can give us is, is your prayers. So please, please keep that in mind. And we are very thankful that they've stepped up because uh, right now our children uh, and our young people are, are tremendous targets for the enemy in these last days. And so we, we, need, to, we need to keep them strong and keep them uh, grounded in the word of God and, and uh, grounded in the joy of the Lord, too. And you know, the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 20, that the, Lord, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And uh, what we have as believers in Jesus Christ is greater than what anything uh, the world has to offer. We have the joy of God, we have the peace of God, we have the strength of God, we have all of these things that uh, uh, can help us to go beyond just, you know, that little bubble that we call our lives. God says, I don't want you to live in a bubble, I want you to live for me. When you live for God, you live outside of the bubble of our own minds and our own creations. We live for him. We go where he wants us to go. We do what he wants us to do. It's a very simple thing. I'm not telling you to go to Africa. I'm just telling you to help our kids in July for vacation Bible school. Got it? See? No? Maybe so? All right. You got it? Okay. 35% of you got it. Okay. You all got it? Okay. That's about 85 We're we're doing better. All right. Did we get it? Yes. All right. Good. I didn't expect to be a cheerleader today, but I just figured I just want to make you make sure you're listening, paying attention. I want to do some more checks along the way as we study God's word. Turn to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12. <clears throat> this is a fourth part of, of our study in the gospel of John chapter 12. We are going through the whole of the gospel. But um, what we have studied previously in the last few weeks, and what is central and key to what we've been studying is the raising of Lazarus from the dead by Jesus. That was back in chapter 11. And this was done shortly before Jesus enters into Jerusalem something that was predicted hundreds of years before in the time of the prophet Daniel. We're dead to the very day when the Messiah would enter into the city of Jerusalem, and shortly thereafter be cut off, which means he would be killed. Jesus prepared for this Event because it was leading, of course, to him going to the cross. It was in the time of Passover, the time that we have just passed, actually. Jesus has entered into the city, and there were a number of things that Jesus did in those few days before he goes to the cross. Those would be the days of inspection. The days we talked about that I'll mention here in just a moment where the lambs were were actually inspected before being taken uh, to sacrifice for each family that they represented. But as we come to verse 20, we come now to a very interesting little development in all that's taking place during this Passover season. We're told in verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. So what... uh, would have to be during that time of the preparation and the inspection of the lambs to be sacrificed for Passover. The Lamb of God himself, who had come into the city of Jerusalem to the shouts of the people, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, was then doing a number of things. He was then cleansing the money changers from the temple in what would have been considered the courts, or the court, I should say, of the Gentiles. Each of the Gospels speak of this entrance into Jerusalem. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus their attention on other certain things that happen. For example, in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, it says, They come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And so Jesus, what, what Jesus is doing, of course, is that he is, in fact, establishing the very truth that he is the Messiah of Israel. That he is the very one to whom the people are crying out, Hosanna, save now, bless now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Making it very clear that only the Messiah could do these things. In effect, he's come in to clean house. Cleaning up the money changers who were, who were taking advantage of the people. In, in selling, things, selling animals like the doves to the very poor people because they didn't have enough to buy a lamb. So they would sell them doves and of course they would take as much as they could get from them. But notice that in verse 16 it says that he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. Keep in mind that he does mention that uh, his house was to be called of all nations the house of prayer. Not just for the Jewish people, but also for all nations. Not only then did the Lord cleanse the temple... But he did other things during that time as well. Matthew 21 verse 14 tells us that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That was during the very same time. So he was not only establishing himself as the Messiah by casting out the money changers and, and crying out. And, and in fact fulfilling scripture that the house was not a house uh, or, uh, for, for thieves but it was a house of prayer. But he also healed in the temple. Which only the Messiah of Israel could do. No one else could heal like he could heal. And then we're told in Luke chapter 19, and I would encourage you to keep a a bookmark in Luke 19 because we'll come back a couple more times. But in Luke 19, we're told in verses 47, 48. Now, what I'm trying to establish here is what is taking place during this short time before he goes to the cross. It says that he taught daily in the temple. So we're told in Luke 19 verse 47 that he was teaching also in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So now we know that most of the people that were there were Jews, but we also know that there were Greeks there or Gentiles. And they were all attentive to Jesus because of all the events that had just previously happened. The very fact that he had raised Lazarus from the dead was something that, that was spread uh, as, as, as far as, as uh, the, the people that were in the surrounding areas could go. To tell people, hey, a man that was dead and really dead for four days has been ra- raised from the dead. By Jesus Christ. By Jesus of Nazareth. And people were starting to get this buzz, and then when Jesus enters into the city, they said, this is the one. He was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. So now everywhere that Jesus went, there were people listening to him. There were people being touched by him. There were people being thrown out by him. But all of these accounts, by the way, well, let's, let's, let's finish reading here. Okay, oh, we did they were, they were very attentive now to what Jesus was doing, but these accounts that I'm giving you are necessary for us to know and to understand why a group of Greek-speaking Gentiles wanted to see Jesus. The cleansing of the money changers from the temple uh, might have been for these Greeks the act or gesture of goodwill of this Messiah toward them, being that it took place where they as Gentiles could be in the court of the Gentiles. That's, that's, that's a place big enough for, for all the people going through there, for there to be room for, for them to uh, set up their tables uh, for selling uh, the animals and all. And the fact that they were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover to worship indicates that they were certainly attracted to the Jewish religion, or more directly, they were attracted to the God of the Jewish people. And we were told back in verse 20 that they were there to worship at the feast. So they actually did come to worship. Now, let me just say also that these Greeks were, uh, some, have peop- some have thought that they were Greek-speaking Jews. But in fact, that you know, uh, the word Greeks in our text here in, in verse 20 is actually the word Helen, H-E-L-L-E-N, uh, from the word Hellas, which is a, the Greek word for Greek or for Greece. Hellas. Uh, Hellas is the Greek word for their nation. Uh, we, we hear of the Hellenization. Of people. That is the the Greek uh, uh, culture being spread throughout the world because of Alexander the Great and so on. So <clears throat> this word is they were actually from Greece. They were Greeks who had come to worship. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't live in the land and I'll explain that in just a moment but before we press on in this passage let me just point out that the scriptures give us so many wonderful pictures and types signs and symbols to encourage us that our great god and savior jesus christ came not only for his people the jews but he came to save the gentiles as well and one thing to point out is that the lord's life on this earth began with a visit from gentiles who came from the east bearing gifts you remember that at the birth of jesus y'all do remember that yes do this make me feel good all right so you We heard about the the people from the East. They, They were Gentiles. They came bearing gifts to Jesus. And his life on the earth drew to a close with a visit from Gentiles who came from the West seeking his most precious gift. They came from the East. They came from the West. Isn't the word of God wonderful to show us? how broad the love of God is, how broad the love of Christ is, that he didn't come just for a singular nation, but he came for all of the world. From the east to the west, this is how he forgives us. This is how we're forgiven. As far as east is from the west, so have our sins been forgiven because of Jesus Christ, if we believe in him. You know, it's a valuable reminder that Jesus came in the words of John the Baptist in John one twenty nine, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Notice, he didn't come, it doesn't just say he came to take away the sin of the Jews. He came to take away the sin of the world. Even Jesus himself in Luke 19 verse 10 would say, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, everyone born on this earth was lost because we were born in sin. And certainly we know that great, uh, the greatest statement ever written in the scriptures, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believe in him, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, it just shows the broad scope of of the love of God for the world, for all that he created, for all of us that were created in his image and in his likeness, yet we had fallen because of sin. Verse 21 tells us that, that the Greeks, who by the way were culturally seekers of truth, came to Philip, by the way, Philip is a Greek name, makes you now get a little bit of an indication why they came to Philip. He had a Greek name. He was a Jew, but he had a Greek name. Who we are told was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Interesting that the scripture tells us something about Philip here. He's, he's a, from a certain place, which might mean that uh, some of these Jews may have been living in Bethsaida of Galilee and knew who Philip was. And they knew that he was a disciple of Jesus. So they came with a great request. The great request is this. We would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And this was certainly evidence confirming the words of the Pharisees that they were passing among themselves in verse 19 where they said, Perceive you, how you prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. Isn't it interesting that the the Pharisees themselves don't just say the Jews are going after him. Our own people are going after him. They said the world is going after him. Once again, we, we we get this idea that Jesus didn't come just to die for a certain number of people or a certain group of people or a certain nation of people. The world is coming after him or has gone after him. Why they came to Philip, as I said earlier, was, is, is something better left to the leading and working of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but possibly because, again, he was from Bethsaida, and these Greeks may have been from that region. But they came to him. But why didn't Philip take them immediately to Jesus? I mean, that seems more intriguing to me. Why didn't he take them directly to Jesus? Could it have been that he didn't understand that salvation was not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles? That, that may be possible. There were times that Jesus dealt with with uh, Gentiles, and and uh, they should have known that he had come for all the world. But it's quite possible that uh, you know Philip uh, fell asleep during that uh, discussion, like sometimes people in church do. And what did he say? <laughs> So he goes to tell Andrew, and together they tell Jesus. Now let me just bring up something very quickly about Andrew, because, you know, Andrew, we we, we can see his name listed with the disciples a couple of times in the Gospels. But when he's mentioned by himself or mentioned with one other person, he's usually mentioned in regards to bringing someone or telling somebody about Jesus. Look that up when you uh, look up the name Andrew. And maybe that's why Philip brought them to Andrew. Andrew was good at leading people to Jesus. In fact, when we first meet Andrew, he's with his brother Peter. And uh, Jesus sees that they're fishing. And he goes to them and he says, you know what? If you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And Andrew becomes a, a type of that kind of fisher of men. Another interesting and very significant thing to consider is the contrast of the inquiries in knowing Jesus. What I mean by that is this, the Jews would say, we want to see a sign, right? We want to see a sign, but the Gentiles or the Greeks, they came and they said, we want to see Jesus. Paul, the the apostle Paul, the former Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Former Hebrew of the Hebrews came to the realization of this truth of inquiry when he wrote to the Corinthian church something that I think you're familiar with, but we want to look at it in context to, to, to this study here in John. Because he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 24, and he says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believe. Now notice what he says in verse 22. For the Jews require a sign. The Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now stop and think for a moment about the Jews requiring a sign. There were many times when they came to Jesus and they said, show us a sign and we'll believe. Jesus said, that's all I've been doing. I've been showing you all the signs and you still haven't believed. Right? Right? But you see the Jewish mindset and the, and the Greek mindset is very different in that the Jewish mindset even down to its very literature, even down to its very uh, language and, and the characters of the, of the Hebrew language is very pictorial. Everything has some sense of drawing pictures. And even then, the pictures that are given to us by words are pictures that are illustrative of, uh, of, of the things that, that God is saying to his people. Pictures that become types of Jesus later on. Because they are always looking at signs. They're looking at signs to lead them to truth. Greeks, on the other hand, were brought up in this more philosophical kind of an understanding. You know, the the Greeks themselves, you know, with with such a foundation of of people like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and, and, and a number of others that uh, laid some kind of a philosophical foundation to, uh, to their um, uh, worldview, as it were. Paul, Paul deals with it because Paul lived in that culture as a Jew. He says the Jews require a sign the Greeks seek after wisdom. But notice what Paul says as a believer in Jesus Christ. He said, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. He says, unto the Jews a stumbling block. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews because they were considering a Messiah that was going to come and lead them in victory against their oppressors. When Jesus was entering into the city of Jerusalem and they were laying down the palm branches and their outer garments and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, in other words, save now, give now your prosperity, give now what you've come to do. Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. They were crying this out because they said, this has to be the Messiah who has come to conquer Rome for us. The cross became a stumbling block to them. Our Messiah is not going to die on a cross. To this day, many Jews will say that in some effect, in some way. We can't believe that Jesus is the Messiah because he died on a cross. But Paul, the the Jew that he was, said, hey, that's a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block because they misinterpret Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant that Jesus was first to be before he becomes the king. At least the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, the king who sits on the throne forever and ever. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. Foolishness? Why why does this man die? It's not logical. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, making very clear, Christ the power of God to be raised from the dead. The the, the cross would then be no stumbling block because the cross was only temporary. To the Greeks, he is the wisdom of God. And Paul, if if you read on, talks about the foolishness of, of God in comparison to the wisdom of men. If God were foolish, which he's not, but even the foolishness of God is wiser than the, the wisdom of men. So, unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, I'm, I'm saying all of this because at this point now, we realize that the king had just been rejected by his own people, Israel. Jesus was being rejected. Because the leadership of the, of the nation had rejected him. And eventually they would be the ones that would rally the crowds to cry, crucify him, crucify him. Before he cast out the money changers, this is what Jesus did and said in Luke 19 verses 41 through 44. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over the city of Jerusalem. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying the entrance of Jesus I said is it a triumphant entry or is it a tearful entry well in reality it was a tearful entry because here it says that he wept over Jerusalem and he said if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace but now they are hid from thine eyes for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation you missed that moment that time that was prophesied by Daniel to the very moment, the very day, the very hour the very year that Jesus was to enter into Jerusalem and then they really missed what was to happen because it says immediate, not, not, not long after that entrance would the Messiah be cut off So he cried and wept over his own people. And still here we have in our text Greeks wanting to see Jesus. And it is quite possible that they came to Philip and then Philip went to Andrew. Oh, by the way, Andrew is another Greek name. He's a Jew, but he's got a Greek name. And they come to them to bring Jesus to them. Not so much to lead them to Jesus, but to bring Jesus to them. Because where Jesus may have been, might not have been permitted for the Greeks to enter. Remember, they could only go as far as the the court of the Gentiles. So now the question is this. Did Jesus actually meet and speak with the Greeks? Because when you read, first of all, you read verse 22. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus... And Jesus answered them. Now you think, well, who's he answering? This is, this is where this becomes a little bit uh, not as clear as we like it to be. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat or a grain of wheat, there's the grain from our title, Greeks and Grain, Except a corn or grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it until until life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, as far as we can tell from the plain text by just reading the text between verses 22 and 23 the Greeks request was not granted as far as we can tell because it doesn't say here John doesn't tell us that Jesus said hi Greeks how you doing right your Bible doesn't have that does it mine doesn't either it just says Jesus answered them and I keep thinking who's them is it Philip and Andrew only or is it Philip and Andrew and the Greeks as well So Jesus' answer does not at first glance appear to be directed to his Gentile visitors. He could have very well said to them, based on the previous events of the past couple of weeks, he could have said, you don't need to see me. Go see Lazarus. Go see Lazarus, because he's he's living the resurrected life. He's living an impossible life made possible because I gave him my life. Go see him. He could have said that. By the way, this is what Jesus has been saying to his people for 2,000 years. Both the Jews and the believers in Jesus Christ. He is saying to us. If you're alive in me, you're like Lazarus. You're alive now. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you're alive now. And the Apostle Paul once again captures this truth in a very grand statement that he makes, what I, I consider one of my favorite verses of all Scripture. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Listen to his words. I am crucified with Christ. There's no doubt that he's saying, I am crucified with Christ I identify with his death for me I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me he's saying the very same thing here if he were to be telling them go see Lazarus Because the Lord wants Christ's life so expressed in our lives that even though people can't see him in the flesh, they will be able to see him in us. That's why the Christian life needs to be a life that is evidenced in our lives. This is the reason why the scriptures continue to tell us that we are being made in the image of Jesus Christ every day as believers but while it might while it may not seem that Jesus was speaking to the Greeks it is also quite possible that indeed he was speaking to them and that their presence was now the time to reveal that his time had indeed arrived you might remember these two passages in our study of John earlier John chapter 2 verse 4 when Jesus was uh, was in uh, uh, Cana of Galilee at a wedding, and his mother, you know, when they had run out of wine, said, "Well, go to Jesus, and he'll he'll tell you what to do." And and Jesus said to her, "Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come." You remember that? Mine hour is not yet come. And in John chapter seven, he says something very similar after. Uh, he had had uh, a number of, of people that had been following him had gone away from him because he had actually said, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you know, you're not going to have any part with me. And the only ones that remained were the 12. And, and, and Jesus said, well, will you leave also? And it was Peter, but it was really, all, you know, he was, was speaking for all the, all the disciples. And he says, where are we going to go? You're the one that has eternal life. Soon after that, as they prepare to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, we're told in in verses 6 through 8 of John chapter 7, Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. Well, that was a while back, wasn't it? But now, His time had come. Now His time had come. And how significant it was that Greeks came saying, we would see Jesus. And Jesus uses that particular opportunity to tell them, my time's come. He's not dying just for the Jews. He's dying for the Jews and the Gentiles. But you see, The sacrifice was about to be bound to the altar. The sacrifice was about to be bound to the altar. Now, I'm saying that because a couple of weeks ago, I made reference to the fact that when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, the people were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 118. It It is a prophecy that was fulfilled that day, a prophecy that we hear and read in Psalm 118 and I want you to turn there and look at it verses 24 to 29 because first of all it begins with this statement this is the day which the Lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it now if we take that particular verse of Scripture and just say listen this is a day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it many times I've started services that way I'll say Hey, this is the day the Lord has made. And guess what? It's true. He made this day, didn't he? And we've come together to do what? To rejoice and to be glad in it. So I'm not saying anything that's not true. But here's the thing. When it was written here in Psalm 118, verse 24, it is here specifically dealing with this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem saying, this is the day the Lord has made. The day that was prophesied by Daniel so many years before. A day that was prophesied to be exactly the day that they should have known Messiah would enter into this city. Because the next verse tells us, save now I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. What is that in Hebrew? Hosanna. Hosanna. Save now. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. They were crying this as Jesus. They were shouting this. They were calling this out. Rejoicing, as it were, as Messiah entered into the city of Jerusalem. But listen, let's go on. Verse 27, God is the Lord which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even unto the horns of the altar. Bind the sacrifice. Why is that here? Because Jesus was entering into the city not to go sit on a throne. He was going into the city to go take our place on the cross. He was entering in as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He was entering into the city as the sacrifice Lamb, the pure Lamb, the blameless and sinless Lamb. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. How appropriate that the praise that we have for Jesus entering into the city to die on our behalf is God, you're so good. Your mercy endures forever. And so Jesus said, in the presence of these Greeks, we we assume, he said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The Jews had persistently and blindly rejected their Messiah, but in contrast, the Greeks had come seeking him. It reminds us of of some of the first words of the Gospel of John. He came unto his own, verse 11 of John chapter 1. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. He came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile. He gave them the right to be the sons of God, the children of God, to as many as believe in his name, to those who were born out of the flesh, or of blood, but of the Spirit. The Greeks had come seeking him, and these Gentiles, Jesus could see, in these Gentiles, Jesus could see his name being exalted and glorified in all parts of the world. We see that happening today. Throughout, all of the, throughout the country right now, people are worshiping the Lord in churches. While we were asleep, people on the other side of the world were worshiping the Lord in their countries, in their churches. God was being praised. Jesus was being glorified and honored and praised. But the Gentiles were not only to see Jesus glorified, they were going to see him crucified. And Jesus makes that clear by saying in verse twenty-four of our text in John twelve, He said, "Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit." Listen, if 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 a, if a grain or a, a corn of wheat stays on the stalk, you know, eventually, what's well, going to be harvested, and and then it's going to be turned into, you know, whatever is going to be used for bread, mostly. Then it will be eaten and so on and so forth. But if that grain is, you know, just stays on the stub by itself, it, it's not, it's not going to die. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to produce anything. Unless that corn of grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much, much fruit. So just as a seed must go into the ground and die for a harvest of fruit to come, so must the Lord Jesus be put to death and buried for life to come. Before there can be that resurrection power, before fruit can be produced, there has to be death. This is why it was so absurd. This this was a tactic of the enemy back in the time of, of Nazi Germany to convince the people that the Jewish people had killed Jesus and that that's the reason why they need to be destroyed. That kind of anti-Semitism didn't just exist in in Nazi Germany, it existed for many, many years before. But it just happened to to really ferment and foment in in the mind of Hitler and of course what happened with with, uh, the people that uh, were responsible for killing over six million Jews. Do you understand, though, what I'm saying here? Before there can be that resurrection power? They, I mean they, I mean, they even blinded the theologians in Germany. They, they blinded uh, pastors. Before there can be resurrection power, there has to be death. That's why Jesus came. The fact of the matter is it wasn't just the Jews that killed Jesus. we, We all did. Jesus was so masterful at using observations from nature to illustrate spiritual realities. He often used the illustration of a sower sowing seeds. Now he talks about the seed itself, a singular seed. It must die first. It must lose its own identity so that a new plant may spring up. Now in Jesus himself... He didn't lose his identity because he, he was never a sinner. He came from heaven, took upon himself flesh so that that flesh could die but also in three days rise again from the dead. Then that flesh was glorified and then he ascended back into heaven and sits at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. Always Jesus. The fact of the matter is when we were born, we were born into sin. We were born into sin and we were born dead in our trespasses and sins spiritually. We were alive physically but dead spiritually. So understand then that we, have, we are to lose our identity with this world. We are to lose the very fact that we are no longer of this world. We are of Jesus Christ as believers. We are of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. Do you understand that? He often used that this this the illustrations so that we can really get hold of these truths. The seed must lose its own identity so that a new plant may spring up. That is best seen in us, and therefore death is a condition of life at its fullest. Unless we die spiritually, or in the sense that we die, you know that the old man dies. We can't live spiritually in Christ. The old man must die so the new man can live. And by the way, it's all going to be in this, we're still in flesh. We're talking about the body of sin, which is our old nature. We'll get to that in a moment. So thus death is a condition of life at its fullest. So the Lord understood that his death would bring life to many people. Here was a lesson about Jesus. He was the grain of wheat that died only to be resurrected in us believers as his fruit. Here was also a lesson for sinners. Until the sinner dies to his own works and to his own efforts, his own merits, his own righteousness, they cannot know life and be saved. We have to die to our own works because we can't work ourselves into heaven we have to die to our own efforts because all of our efforts are not going to get us into heaven we have to die to our own merits because our merits are not you know it doesn't matter how many good things you've done in this life that's not going to matter and what about our own righteousnesses the scriptures are very clear in the book of isaiah our righteousnesses are as dirty rags filthy rags they cannot know life. We cannot know life and be saved in and of ourselves. So consequently, there is a lesson as well for believers. That was a lesson for sinners. But the lesson for believers is that we too have been planted into the likeness of Christ's death. Go to Romans chapter 6. And once again, Paul clarifies so much for us in these issues. Romans chapter 6 Verses 5 through 12, Paul says this. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Notice, he's speaking to the church and he's speaking to believers. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So, in other words, unless we die, we can't live. You got the picture? get in the picture here unless we die we can't live knowing this that our old man is crucified with him notice the old man the old man that the body of sin might be destroyed ok now these, these bodies are, are you know we're, we're, we're uh, finite beings and, and all so you know, we're, we're still talking in that realm of what takes place inside of us The body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's the body of the old nature. For he that is dead is freed from sin. If you're dead, you're freed from sin. You die, okay, you're freed from from that sin nature. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So it is our identification with the death of Jesus Christ, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So you have to be dead unto sin. How do we know that? How do do we experience that? By dying to ourselves. But alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Let not sin therefore reign. What does it mean to reign? It means to rule over, to dominate over you. Don't let sin dominate in your mortal body. That's the body that you're in here today. Y'all pinch yourselves now just make sure you're, you're awake and alive, okay? You're not, this is not a dream for some of you. This is not a nightmare being here, okay? Hopefully not. So understand, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in in the lust thereof. So all of this establishes our position with Christ and our salvation in Christ. But to become fruitful, we must die to ourselves. To become fruitful, we must die to ourselves. We must put to death the works of the flesh. We must put to death our old nature. Now, we come to a paradox that Jesus presents to us. I said a paradox, not a pair of ducks. A pair of ducks is two ducks. But we're not talking about two ducks. We're talking about a paradox. And so we read in verse 25 what Jesus said He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto, eternal, unto life eternal. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it. Love and hate. We sometimes think that we love something, we're going to, you know, keep it. See the paradox? If you love something, you'll lose it. But if you hate, and that hate is a strong word, but it, it just means that Our life in this world is not to be loved. It's a strong word to tell us that our life as believers is not here, but it's with the Lord. A simple definition of a paradox is a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. Now, in this case, it's a biblical truth a paradox that expresses a biblical truth. The paradox is that death is the way to life. Death is the way to life. We must be so committed to Jesus Christ that there is no self-centeredness, no concern for self. Now what I mean by that is not to say that you shouldn't take care of yourself and your needs. God gives us enough room in the scriptures to do that. In fact, in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about this very issue, that we are to be more concerned for the needs of others than of ourselves. But he doesn't say, don't have any concern for yourself. No, he says, have more concern for others than yourself. Have concern for yourself, but have more concern for others. Because that makes us selfless. I mean, you all got, I'm I'm so glad you all got up this morning and did what you had to do to look nice and smell nice and be nice while you came in here, right? I'm, I'm really glad, I did too, you know, so I don't want to be offensive to anybody here. You know, so we take care of ourselves, that's all right, no, 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 no problem with that. The fact of the matter is, though, there are people that God leads us to so we can take care of them. God gives us the resources so we can take care of people in, in their times of need. So as believers, you see, we need to realize that there's no self-centeredness. We're not in the Christian life to see what we can get out of it, you, you understand that? There are some people who think that about the Christian life. No, that's not biblical. We have to die to ourselves. Now the Christian life itself is a paradox because to keep, we must give. To be great, we must bow and serve. To be exalted, we must first be humbled. To go up, you gotta go down. To live, we must die. That's the Christian life. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Did you all get it? All right, now you, you you, you guys are a little sleepy here. First service got it. They were better than last night. Last night they didn't get it. Okay. All right, so you ready? Let me say it again. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. See, they're, they, they're, they're sent away empty because they, they're, just, they're full of themselves, but they have nothing. All right. I, don't, I hate to explain these things to you. Okay. Somebody else said this. Listen carefully. The trouble with some self made men is that they worship their creator. Self made men. They made themselves, so who do they worship? Their creator. Do you understand what's being said here? We can't be full of ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. There's nothing for us to boast in that we have ever done in and of ourselves to say, you know, God may have saved me, but I've done everything else. I mean, that's the height of arrogance, folks. It's the height of arrogance to say, you know, well, okay, maybe I'm saved, but you know what? I do everything now myself. You do nothing of yourself. God has given you everything you have. Are we able to say today that we have what we have because we did it ourselves? No. We give the glory to the Lord every day for every breath. For every breath you take, you should give thanks. In verse 26 it says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Where verse 25 contains a paradox, verse 26 contains a principle. And the paradox is part of the principle. Every person has to determine which world they intend to. To live for. Every one of us has to determine which world we intend to live for. We can live for Jesus. We can live for the kingdom of God that is to come. And we will be with him for all eternity. That's, that's a pretty good thing to live for. We can live for Jesus. We can live for his kingdom. And we can be with him for all eternity. Or we can live for this world and be the losers in eternity. Because the reality is there is an eternity for every person on this earth. Every person that's ever lived, there is an eternity. But there is an eternity with God and an eternity separate from God. An eternity to live well and right and be blessed forever and an eternity to be totally separated from God and to live in great, great pain and suffering. Which eternity... Do you determine to live for? Seriously consider what the Lord says. He tells them to follow him. He says, If you serve me, follow me. Now, where where is he in time? He says, If you serve me, you'll follow me. Where was he going? He tells them to follow him, and he is on the way to the cross. He's on the way to the cross. Are you ready to follow him then? His promise is that where he is, his servants will be also. And if we serve him and follow him, his father will honor us. It takes the courage that only God can give us. It takes the courage that only God can give us through the power of his Holy Spirit to stand for his truth, to stand and say, I'm ready to die that I might live for Christ. Jesus said it this way to his disciples and I'm gonna close with this. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus called them to him and he said unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Interesting how we've been talking about the Greeks who came to Jesus before he goes to the cross. And yet Jesus mentions Gentiles in their exercise of lordship over their people. You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, you see the the paradox here? Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, which means shall be your servant, shall be your servant. You wanna be great? Then you're a servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many shortly we're going to come to a time in the book of John where Jesus is going to gather with his disciples for the feast of Passover and he's going to be at their feet washing their feet what was that for it was to show them he even says so I am your example as to how you are to be, to wash the feet of one another. You want to be great in the kingdom, and you mean to be a servant. And if you're going to be a servant, then follow me. And if you follow me, that begins at the cross. I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me are we able to say this with all of our heart today? Are we able to say, Lord, I'm ready to die to myself, that Christ lives in me? If you haven't done so, the day will be a good day to begin this new life in Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you and bless you for your goodness and your mercies. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that, Lord, before we ever were born, you knew us. You knew us before the foundation of the world and you loved us anyway and you love us still. And how grateful we are that we have your word to remind us of that great work on our behalf. Father, how I pray that your spirit would now move upon upon the hearts of those here who need you, who need to respond to you We need to come to grips with where they are in their lives today and where they need to be for eternity. Father, I pray that outlooks change completely from that which is driven by the world to that which is led by the Spirit of God. Pray, Father, that dead hearts will be made alive today. I pray, Father, that the darkness that we have found ourselves in will wonderfully change into the light of the glory of Christ. All of this, Lord, today we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. And it is in that precious name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Shall we stand? As the Spirit of the Lord moves among us today, I pray that if God has touched your heart in any way, If his spirit and his word has has stirred you to understand this worship that we're talking about, because worship is not just singing. Worship is our love for God, our expression of praise to God. It is our giving our all to God, not just in this place, but wherever we are, wherever we do. Then I would just encourage you, if you need prayer to receive Christ, to pray for him then I would just ask you to come here to the front and some of our pastors elders deacons will be available to pray with you I say the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom give you peace give you God's best that's what I pray for you today God's best be yours That's a good thing to have, isn't it? Because everything God gives is his best. When he sent his only begotten son, he gave us his best. Let's go home with the best. Amen? Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful day in the Lord. Remember, keep praying uh, for our ladies coming back from from retreat today. And uh, pray for VBS and pray for Josh and Melody and and all those. And, And, you know, if God's put it on your heart to serve him, then, then uh, let them know uh, Josh will be out there today.